From the crossroads of America in the Hoosier state of Indiana, this is Get In, the podcast focused on the unfolding stories and extraordinary innovations happening right now in the heartland. I'm Nate Spangle, head of community at Powder Keg, and I'm going to be your host for today's conversation. I'm joined in studio with our usual suspects, Christopher Toaf Day, CEO at Elevate Ventures, and Matt Hunkler, CEO at Powder Keg. And um, I, I think I used that lesson in a big way with Powder Keg. You know, I, I was watching this trend of the unbundling of Silicon Valley beyond the Bay Area for a long, long time before I raised any money or decided to go all in on it. On today's show, we're going to dive deep into both of these guys' minds. We're going to learn a little bit more on how they think about business, investing, and hear stories of their successes, as well as their failures throughout their entrepreneurial careers. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nate. Good to be here. Stoked to be here. It's weird go. being in this seat. Yes. In the, in the hot seat. If we're hitting failures today, then I guess that's just going to take we're going four hours long. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. This is going to be our mega episode, so tune in. Mega um, episode. So... Most of our listeners know who you guys are, know a little bit about you, but I figured we could do a quick dive. Well, I quick. hope if we're doing our job right, I'm hoping there's a bunch of listeners that don't know us. Oh, that would be sweet. That would be that, sweet. Yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Um, there you go. Well, we're going to help them learn a little bit more about you guys really quickly. Deep, we're going to dive into your background, right? So I have a few questions to learn a little bit more about you guys, where you're from, kind of your upbringing, um, before we kind of get into the meat of today's show. So... Toph, where'd you grow up? I grew up in a town called Buck Creek, Indiana. It is about 15 miles from Purdue. 15 miles. How big is Buck Creek? About 300. We had a three-way stop sign, a blacksmith, and a green elevator. Heck yeah. And yes. a grocery store. We had Meisner Grocery Store. That it's about, the entire store was about as big as this studio. About this, 20 by 40. This studio is not big for, for those of you listening along. <laughs> Matt, where'd you grow up? I grew, uh, I grew up in West Lafayette, which is about zero miles from Purdue. Um, <laughs> it was a college town. It was an awesome place to grow up. I know exactly where Buck Creek is. Um, <laughs> I did not have a blacksmith in my neighborhood, but I had an amazing community to grow up in. Um, lots of college professors, as you might imagine. All my friends' parents worked at Purdue. Um, my parents did not, but they both got degrees, uh, additional degrees while we were in West Lafayette. What did your parents do? Uh, my mom was a guidance counselor. She's a, a mental health counselor now, um, but she was even my guidance counselor in fifth grade, which was very weird. That sounds stressful. <laughs> and my dad was a serial entrepreneur, so he was in line to uh, inherit the family business, decided not to, and uh, went off and did his own thing. So he did all kinds of different uh, businesses, SAT prep business. Um, he did, uh, oh gosh, that was SAT prep was my favorite. Cause he always had little songs and jingles <laughs> to memorize things. Good. Yes. And yeah. he, he helped me with my SATs for sure. Uh, which was great. I hope we don't have to share our SAT scores. Can we move to the next item? Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, I, I'd love to know. <laughs> Best predictor of success yeah. for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. That would be a good one, knowing the SAT scores of future successful oh, entrepreneurs. Oh, that would be interesting. Mm. Uh, Toph, what did your parents do? Uh, so my father was an agronomist at Purdue, and then we also grew up on a farm. So we were a 100-acre farm. We used to farm with an old farm wall, a three-bottom plow. And, uh, and my mom, uh, she would trade uh, you know, meat and things with other farmers. And then uh, she ended up becoming a librarian at the uh, Purdue Undergraduate Library. 
That's amazing. Okay, so Toph grew up on a farm. So other than farming, what was your first job? Uh, my very first job was detasseling corn. Oh, or I think oh. around two dollars and eighty-five cents. That was like the prime summer job because yeah. that was actually the high pay. Oh yeah, it was out big of money. All the things, yeah, big money, and it's really awesome in the dead of summer when it's super hot if you just got braces on. Oh, <laughs> oh that's God. brutal. Oh yeah. gosh, that's, that'll build some character. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm seeing yeah. you can find optimism in anything if you spend a summer detasseling. Oh, Absolutely, uh, Matt. What was your first job? Uh, let's see. It was technically delivering newspapers, the Journal and Courier. Yes. Had a small paper out my entire neighborhood, probably 40 to 50 homes. Nothing. What time did you get up to do that, to deliver? I think like five. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Five. But fortunately, my dad walked it most, almost every morning with me. So I had company. And it was a good, good opportunity to uh, learn about business. I was super into business at the time, so I, I would use the opportunity to ask him all kinds of questions. Get some free labor. And get some free labor for sure. Yeah, uh, d- divide and conquer. I love this. I actually wanted to go back to one thing Tove said, or uh, a point from Tove. So, Tove, you grew up on a farm. What is the one lesson that you learned from growing up on a farm that you apply to business today? Work ethic and thinking ahead three steps. Oh, I love that. That's a great answer. Tell me about thinking ahead three steps. Okay, ready? Here's my story. Um, and I actually did a thing for my son about it being, uh, when my grandfather died, I did a little speech at my grandfather's funeral. In the in the punchline was, it's time, I looked at my son, I'm like, it's time for you to paint the plow. So here's the story. Uh, my, my dad was really good at just saying, hey, do this, right? Go do that thing. And so one day, um, it was a little rite of passage, and it was my turn to paint the plow. And my dad told me to go out and paint the plow. And so those who of you may not know, when you put the plow away for the, for the season, you paint the plow shears so they don't rust. I don't know if it's a requirement, but we did it. And I don't know, every year we did it. So he said, you're trying to paint the plow. I went out and I grabbed the black paint and I painted the plow and, uh, went back in. I was all proud. I thought it looked great. And, um, I went in to tell my dad I'd finished painting the plow and he said, great, let's go take a look at it. And we walked out there. And on the way to the uh, plow, we walked in the tool shed, and he grabbed a hammer. I'm like, that's kind of weird. Well, he's grabbing a hammer. Looks like we have another project to do. <laughs> and we walk over to the plow, and he looks at it, and he leans over, and he takes that hammer, and he hits one of the plow shears, and a big old chunk of dirt fell off. You know, I basically painted over some dirt, right? <laughs> and uh, he looked at me and just walked away, walked back in the house. And I'm like, shit. Failed, right? And I, oh, I do not want to fail again. So I didn't think ahead, right? So you got to paint the plow. I got to prep, right? So what do I need to go get to prep to actually paint the plow to do a good job so it's going to last until the next year? That's an example. Wow. I love that. I love a good farming analogy. That's yeah. makes a lot of sense. Paint the plow. Paint, paint the, the plow. plow. We need to bring that back. Good maybe, alliteration. Maybe our tagline, Steve Johns would be proud of that. Paint the plow. Paint the plow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So we get through first jobs. Where'd you guys go to college? Purdue. What'd you study? Uh, I was actually in, in construction management. Okay. Yeah, which I haven't BCM. touched that for, for. Yeah, I haven't touched that forever. But yeah, that was my major. I thought I wanted to go be a commercial general contractor when I grew up. Was that your first job out of school? Yeah. Yep. Yep. What did you learn in commercial general contracting construction that you apply today? Manage by fact. Elaborate on that. Well, if you manage by fact, so like there's a lot of moving pieces when you build a building. We were building hospitals and stadiums and all kinds of big, fun, complex projects. And um, 
and if you, you know, there's drawings, and if you just manage by fact, right, and you scope out the project properly up front, you negotiate the contract, you make sure you understand what's in the contract, not in the contract, et cetera, um, and you, if there's a, if the architect envisioned something like the Taj Mahal, but didn't really draw it that way, and wants to change it after you built it, um, then you have a discussion, and you say, <laughs> hey, the drawings don't show that, and we can't just magically you know, come up with another million dollars to change this thing the way you want it. Um, and so we can either do a, a change order and, and if there has to be a schedule change or we keep cruising. And it's interesting. A, a lot of people have probably dealt with residential contractors and all the frustrations you deal with. Um, that's because they're, they're, they're not managing by fact. They're not planning. They're not thinking three steps ahead. Well, so. You're not ready to paint the plow. Yeah. <laughs> not ready to paint the plow. Matt, where'd you go to college? So the interesting story there, I grew up in West Lafayette, vowed I would never go to school in the state of Indiana because growing up in a college town, I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to go see the world. I had never been really anywhere. A family vacation was always to the family farm in North Dakota. And so got to see everything, uh, you know, in the Midwest section between Indiana and North Dakota. But other than that, I hadn't really seen the world. Um, And I um, ended up at Purdue because I got into uh, University of Chicago. I knew I was paying for my own college education and I was looking at a full ride at Purdue or $44,000 a year, just in tuition. That's a little bit of a difference. Times four, if I get get through in four years, do I go on and graduate, you know, with almost $200,000 in loans or potentially no loans? And so I went to Purdue. Um, and they had just started a general honors program there um, that sent me to Quebec um, for a week before school started. I uh, met one of my best friends still to this day on that trip to Quebec. We ended up living on the same floor with all the other, like everyone who had like a 1600 on their SAT. I did not have a 1600 on my SAT. Oh, I thought that was a humble brag right <laughs> no, there. Everyone else who no, had 1600. No, 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 I did not. Neither did my friend Derek. Um, but it was a really great freshman year, just an awesome opportunity to... Um, you know, learn a little bit more. I, I actually did engineering as well. So I was doing an engineering business double major. I thought I wanted to be an architect and one day own my own architecture firm. So I thought, oh, if I pick up a degree in business and a degree in structural engineering, I'll be set up pretty nicely to own my own firm. Um, but while I was at Purdue, I got a job as a CAD detailer, computer automated design detailer using AutoCAD, basically doing the job of an architect. So like the, arch- the licensed architect next to me was doing similar job, obviously better work. But similar job to what I was doing as like an intern, he just had the you know rubber stamp to be able to stamp the designs, and you know so my designs would be given to them. They look it over, stamp it. I hated that job, okay. and so that's that's a great example of why internships are awesome. Yeah, is I got a glimpse into that world. Now, granted, it was a not a perfect glimpse into it. We were designing you know car dealerships you know, for Bob Roarman across, you know, the Midwest. Bob Roarman. That's the guy. Yeah. Um, but I, I transferred. So this is a long way of saying I actually graduated from IU. I transferred to IU after my freshman year. Of course, lost my full ride, uh, which is how I ended up needing to start a business, was to pay my way through my final three years at IU, um, which, yeah, was one of the better decisions I ever made in my life, actually. Wow. Going to the rival. Yeah. Tove, how do you feel about that? I think it's awesome. I actually almost went to IU. Oh. I, I was going to IU, actually. I was in, accepted, and I rushed my senior year of high school. I was going to be a Fiji, and I think the only reason I got a bid is because I was on fire at the hyper. 
you know, during rush weekend in nice. high school. And, um, but yeah, I was moving in and literally, uh, six weeks before school started, I changed my mind to last second because oh. I found out about this construction management program at Purdue and that my mom had told me about, it's like one of the top in the nation. And she knew I thought I wanted to be a, own my own general contracting company someday, commercial construction. And so I'm like, wow, then I've got to go do that. Yeah. So I changed my mind to last second. I love it. It's never too late. Yeah. Even after you put a year in. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> By the way, did you guys hear about that? Uh, the kid from New Orleans that uh, just received $10 million in scholarship offers from 168 uh, schools, I think it is. He just picked Cornell. No. It's an amazing story. It's, the, it's a record-breaking um, uh, offer of scholarship for any high school student ever. Wow. That's a lot of, that's why, a lot of scholarship. Why did they get so many scholarships? I, I don't know the whole story. Um, I, there, there was one story I clicked on it, and for some reason I couldn't read it because it wasn't subscribed to whatever the publication was. Um, but yeah, he's he he's just been apparently wow. like in the third grade. He was pumping out powerpoints and things when yes. you know, they're like, write your name five times, That's and he's amazing. like, how about a twenty-page powerpoint? You know, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he probably did okay on his SATs. Yeah, uh, he would probably been on that floor. Yeah, and he would have yeah. belonged there. Yes, I did not belong. Yeah. All right. So Matt, <laughs> you talked about starting a business in college to pay for the last three years at IU. How did you make your first dollar on the internet? First dollar on the internet, I think was my records business in high school. Um, I started a business basically digitizing vinyl records onto CD. This is a time capsule, right? Because now everyone wants vinyl. But at the time, <laughs> everyone wanted their vinyl converted to CD, compact disc for Gen Zers out there. Um, they're like a small vinyl. Um, and... I made posts, you know, on Craigslist and in the Journal and Courier online and, and all of that. So I think that's technically probably my first dollars. I got a cut, you know, got customers. Most of my customers were like word of mouth, you know, mm -hmm. knocking on doors around my neighborhood and talking to all my teachers, every adult that I knew. Yes. Um, but some of them, I think I, I got a couple online. How old were you? 16. 16, 17. Okay. So for maybe we have a perspective, 16 year old future entrepreneur out there. If you had to give them one piece of advice to get their first customer, what is it? Sell it before you build it. Ooh, can you, can you elaborate? Sell it before you build it. Um, I, uh, I made sure that there was a market for digitizing, uh, records before, before basically buying all the extra equipment to take my turntable and, and, at that time, there just weren't USB turntables. So to like get the preamp, to put the turntable that I had at home into a preamp and then digitize that into the computer, which was a gateway. Uh, shout out to Steve Johns, who was, on, yes. who was working at Gateway at the time and was on the show previously. Um, and, you know, that would have been very expensive if I had gone out, bought all of those, taken the time to learn how to do it. Um, and instead, you know, first get the customer and then, then learn how to do it. Did that again later in college. My dad was like, Hey, uh, I got this opportunity. Uh, it's yours if you want it. He was working at university of Notre Dame press at the time. He said, they need a typesetter. I'm like typesetter. What the heck is that? It's like basically designing the books. You know, how does the type lay out on every page of, of all the books of the university of Notre Dame press? He's like, you do design, you've learned how to use AutoCAD. It can't be that different learning how to use Adobe illustrator and i was like sure like how much does it pay and it was i don't know 500 bucks or something like that. holy cow 500 bucks big money yeah um and so i got that customer before learning even buying adobe illustrator which of course i could do at the union for like 15 dollars um and then learning how to use adobe illustrator um, and then i used that literally for that business i started in college 
the same way. I would always sell it before I bought any of the software or hired any of the contractors to do the projects. Um, sell it before you build it. I love that. That's great advice. So, Toph, you are now the CEO of Elevate Ventures. But before that, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? My first entrepreneurial endeavor was picking up corn that fell on the ground and putting it in a gunny sack and then walking them down to the elevator about a mile away to sell it. <laughs> I love that. How, how did you identify this opportunity? Well, one day I was, uh, I went into the field to pick up one of the grain wagons and I'm driving along, right, to go back to our grain bin and I'm looking on the ground and there's these, all these ears of corn laying on the ground. And I'm like, that's money. Yeah. Nobody else is picking it up. So I grabbed my brother and we went out and started picking it up and sticking it in gunning sacks. I love that. That's the most Indiana entrepreneurial endeavor I've ever heard. That, we made at least like $2 a gunny sack. <laughs> hey. And it would take like four hours to fill up a gunny sack. Oh, God. That's, hey. that's good money. Free money. <laughs> there we Free go. Free money. <laughs> uh, hey, nothing wrong with that. Uh, okay, so then fast forward. What was your first official business that you launched? First official business was a painting company. Uh, so I had a painting company uh, in college. I started it right after my freshman year. Those things print money. I was making 400 bucks net a house. Wow. And at the peak, we had 14 employees. Um, and I did that for three years. You were you had 14 employees as a college student? Yes. What was the secret to managing that? Oh, well, I, I mean, I screwed it all up. <laughs> uh, the first year, I tried to run it year round. Uh, and so the first, the first two summers were up in um, Chicago. And, uh, and I tried to run it year round the first year. And uh, I kept on three of the professional painters, and um, that did not work out very well. One of them actually staged a theft, oh my uh, gosh. broke into our painting van himself, and then stole the sprayer out of it, and it was a complete disaster. But recovered from that, and then just did it during the summers thereafter, and uh, yeah, we were cranking. Tove, you're running this painting business. <laughs> There's a theft that's staged, right? And, and many times, like, when you experience that first failure, it can be discouraging, so talk to us about some other failures that you've had in your professional career. Well, um, going back to that painting company, the very first house we painted was about $356 roughly. Mm -hmm. It took about, I don't know, four hours. So I obviously underpriced that, but it wasn't a big deal. It was a short, quick job. The second job we went to do um, had priced out at $12,000. And this was a house in Evanston, Illinois, modeled after Henry Longfellow's house. This thing was huge. Had wow. over 100 windows on it, plus the old school Door, uh, storm windows, yep. like the wood frame storm windows. So basically it's over 200 windows. And the, the guy's daughter was getting married that summer and wanted to paint the house up and they're doing much of work on it and um, gave him a price. And I was terrified because I'm $12,000. That is a lot. All the money, money in the world. At that All the money in the world, right? Yeah. And he couldn't sign that thing fast enough. And I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. So we, we start working on this. I lost my ass. Uh, it, 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 I can't remember the exact number, but we lost at least $3,000 on it. I mean, lost, lost. Like not wow. lost our profit margin, like ate up to 12000 and then went into cost the 3000 more. Yeah, cost more. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that was a big failure. Um, what lesson did you learn from that? Um, I guess, you know, don't get over your skis. Like make, make sure you bring in the expertise you need before you go from zero to a hundred, right? I mean, we're painting a mansion on the second day. I didn't even know what the difference between latex paint and oil paint was. I literally on that same house tried to mix up some, the oil paint for the chimney. I tried to put water in a five gallon bucket and I'm trying to mix it up and it was an expensive paint, right? Cause it was for the chimney. And so it was like industrial grade paint basically. 
And uh, I ruined a whole five gallon bucket full of paint, which was, I don't remember, two, three hundred bucks or something like that. So, um, yeah, get the expertise you need early and often. I love that. That's good. That's good advice. Um, but if you had to pinpoint one failure that like is the, the gem of all failures throughout your career, what would it be? Um, I was involved in a bottled water company and that, that's the one company failure that, that I, that I have that I was a part of. And, um, it frustrates me because we had a deal struck with some folks to buy this water source and, uh, the partners that we were involved in refused to sell it. So that really stunk. Mm. How'd you recover from that? Uh, move on. Just move on. Yeah. Sun's going to come up tomorrow. Amen so, to that. You know, is what it is. Be be transparent with whoever's involved and and uh, and move on. There we go. All right, Matt. Do you have a do you have a, a failure story that you want to share with the the listeners out there? I think my biggest uh, business failure was one I started when I was an ore fellow, e commerce business, like just traditionally historically very tough business to be in. Uh, you're competing with Amazon. You're competing with lots of other companies. And at that time, I didn't even understand venture capital. And um, started with someone who was a trend spotter out of Cincinnati, worked with a lot of the CPG uh, companies out there and um, was basically Birchbox before Birchbox was uh, kind of uh, ahead of the trend of like non-toxic personal care products and cosmetics. Um, I just didn't realize how early ahead of the trend <laughs> it was. I had some idea because I knew SEO at that time and I, I did search traffic analysis and I had enough people who are kind of like, yeah, I mean, that doesn't seem like it's a very big market right now. I was like, yeah, but I mean, it's TrendSpotter. He says it's going to be a thing. If you look, you know, it's starting to show up in magazines and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, I there were a lot of people who were kind of helping coach me through that, but I probably stuck with it a little too long. And uh, ultimately, the lesson is either uh, time <laughs> timing is everything and picking the right 100%. market is everything. And, um, I, I think I used that lesson big, in a big way with powder keg. You know, I, I was watching in this trend of the unbundling of Silicon Valley beyond the Bay area for a long, long time before I raised any money or decided to go all in on it. Um, and unt until I saw the signs and the search traffic starting to go up, um, and everything else kind of moving in that direction from a cultural standpoint, um, I took that lesson and, and. I think we're timing it right this time. There we go. Okay. I, I think what Matt just said is so huge. Timing and luck, right? And like timing is such a big thing. Riding that wave just right, being a little bit too early or a little bit too late. And then sometimes that that one customer, that one investor, you know, out of a thousand that you talk to that, that say no, or I don't get it, or that makes no sense, um, or you're too green, or, you know, whatever it is. It's it's wild how sometimes massive successes can hinge on just one or two decisions early on. Yeah, yeah. it is very much like surfing, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. if you try to paddle into a wave before it's cresting, yeah. you're gonna get you're just gonna get tired. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's all you're <laughs> right. gonna get. Yeah. There, there is no fun. There is no flow. You're just paddling and thrashing in the water. But if you catch that wave just right, and it's a hundred foot wave, and you know how to ride it. You're going to go far. You're going to go fast and have a freaking blast. There yep. we go. That's yep. good. So when you're catching that wave, right, I want to I wanna go on the opposite side of the coin. Tove, tell me about the happiest moment in your professional career. Mm. 
Wow. The happiest moment in my professional career. Um, I think it would be um, when one of the company, well, gosh, that's so hard. There's, there's like three moments, but um, there were, there was one company in particular uh, Viastar when we, when we sold the technology that um, uh, it, it was a, it was a, it was a great day. Um, and I could literally feel the pressure just release from my body. Um, yeah, I would say that that was, that was one big one. I love that. Matt highlight of your professional career thus far. I think a lot of times highlights are kind of in context of what they're contrasted against. And so I, I the first thing that came to my mind was uh, right after the pandemic kind of hit in early 2020, you know, we had our last in-person event with Powder Keg in February of 2020, but before the world shut down. So for years, we didn't have in-person events. And uh, being in that kind of uh, mode with the team where it's like, okay, what do we do now? Because for, for years, in-person events had been what our community was centered around. And so the thing that came to my mind was our very first Unvalley conference where we were like, this is the unbundling of Silicon Valley. You can start a tech company, you can grow a tech career from anywhere. And we had, I think, uh, 1500 plus people there stayed for an average of like, it was like four or five hours for the entire day long conference. And just seeing the connections that were happening on the platform, moving our whole community online, that was definitely a peak moment and uh, super proud of the team and, and what they were able to pull off for that. I love that. So, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it. Powder Keg has long been known for its events, both virtual and in-person, but we're kind of talking about in-person events here. What is the coolest event you've ever hosted? Coolest event I've ever hosted. I'll tell you the craziest event I've ever hosted. There we go. This is what I'm looking for. <laughs> um, Boston. Uh, it's in Boston. We're, we're doing an event with a company called Recess who puts on college pitch competitions. So college students from across Boston, all the different colleges around Boston. And they're competing for a grand prize of, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars. You know, Amazon is sponsoring it. It's on the same day as the Boston Marathon. The Red Sox are also playing at Fenway Park, which is across the street. We're in the House of Blues in Boston. Three stories of students packed that place. And, you know, you wouldn't think that students would come out for a student pitch competition, but that's because they didn't. It was marketed as a concert. Because after the pitch <laughs> competition, Lil Dicky, <laughs> yes. who, who has his own awesome. who has his own show, you know, on FX now, huge at the time, you know, hip hop artist, hilarious guy. Um, he was the artist, and so me and these twelve student entrepreneurs are the only thing standing between three thousand people. 3,000 drunk students who have been partying all day because it's a national holiday, basically, in Boston. Right, yeah. You know, it shuts down for the marathon. <laughs> it shuts down, you know, for the for the, the Red Sox. And, um, oh, my gosh, it was the hardest event I have ever emceed, keeping students engaged. You know, I had to pull out every trick in the book to keep them interested in what was going on doing good, interesting intros, keeping the show moving, dodging bottles that were being thrown at me. 
<laughs> yes. That that didn't actually happen. Classic. But but um, let's go with that though. Yeah, That's it, awesome. it was awesome. And it crescendoed in a little dicky concert. So I mean it was <laughs> it was fantastic. I'm sure they were so happy when you finally announced, like, Lil Dicky's coming on oh stage. Oh, my gosh. Like, the energy was insane. I mean, because it was like an hour and a half of buildup <laughs> for this concert. Uh, I mean, good marketing by Recess, right? Hey, I just got back from a Taylor Swift concert where I literally had to wait five hours for the rain to pass and the lightning storm to pass. Um, so, I mean, an hour and a half of pitch competition yeah. where you can order from the bar, like... Yeah, come on, come on. Yeah, every yeah every time you uh, there could have been a fun drinking game. People could have played along with that when they are identifying the problem and the the market, all that fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. Oh, sure. um, okay, Tof, this question's for you. So, in my extensive research, I found that you were the managing director of two Sky Zone locations. Yep. Correct. Yep. Tell me a little bit about that. How you go from technology, and you're like, you know what? I always want to get kids across. Central Indiana bouncing. So, um, so I was a passive investor, basically. So my okay. title was managing director because the part owner, right? Mm -hmm. Had another partner in it. Um, but I did it for kind of two reasons. Number one, a, a buddy of mine called up one day. He owned a business in the same building that, that one of them was in. And he's like, there, there's this business down here. And it's basically these trampolines. And I see school bus after school bus just pulling in there. And just so happened the person that owned it, um, was his next door neighbor lived a few houses away and he had to sell one of his several sky zones cause he wanted to open another one and, and was just kind of over leveraged and need to get one, rid of one of the assets. So anyway, um, I, so I did it more for like diversification mm -hmm. of investment portfolio, um, coupled with, I'm like, how cool would it be to be a part of where kids get their first job and to create an environment? And we ended up opening another one. So we had two of them. And, um, and so we, gosh, I don't, we had them for seven years and I don't even know how many kids we impacted over a thousand for sure. Maybe a couple thousand of kids first jobs. I don't think you know this, but my brother-in-law's first job was at that sky zone. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So I used to go there every once in a while, every, probably every few months I'd go there on a Sunday night to the team meetings Yeah. and I'd give a little speech and I'd, I'd talk to him about, you know, what life was like and, <laughs> That's and awesome. why you smile and, and treat everybody with respect when they come in not only because they're your customer, but you're also, you don't even know it, but you might be relationship building. Yeah. And, and we had multiple stories of kids that met people that owned businesses or whatever. And that, and that, that high school kid wanted to go to college to be an engineer or do whatever. Right. And they would get internships, et cetera. So uh, it was a, it was a blast. That, that does sound like a good one. And yeah. just like, I can just imagine Toph's like rah-rah Sunday night speech. These kids are like, I just want to get home and play video <laughs> games or whatever. It's like all of a sudden Toph comes in and is like, all right. Let's roll. You may think you're just letting these kids bounce <laughs> on trampolines, but it is so much more. You're laying down your life path and you don't even know it. I love yeah. that. Well, and my niece and nephew both just had birthdays and I got them what was at the very top of their list, which was a three-month membership to Sky Zone. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, kids. Um, unlimited bouncing. Freaking unlimited bouncing. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, I love that, Tove. That's a good diversification there. Just dishing out life lessons. Um, turned down, it was actually one of the best deals I've ever done. I bet. <laughs> From a cash on cash standpoint, I it, bet. it was insane. Nice. Okay. So we're talking, we're going to talk uh, investing, business. First, uh, first kind of question here I have for you is, what is the best business idea you've ever had that you didn't act on? Okay. Mm. I got one. Go, go. And I still think there's something here, but I, of course. I don't know. So I'm going to throw course. it out there and if somebody takes it, run with it. 
Um, and I actually bought a domain I still have called Ripple Rain. I don't know if it's a good name or not, but RippleRain.com is this domain I bought. But I, but I believe that there is, we're in for a massive paradigm shift. And what makes no sense to me is why the world is set up for, and I'm thinking of consumer products here, mm-hmm. of why companies are just left to guess at what you want to buy um, at any given point in time. So why don't, why don't you flip the whole thing on its head and just create a marketplace where I say, okay, my name's Toph, right? And I, I'm a male and this is how old I am. But, but every human is typically in one of three phases, fantasy, uh, research, or decision, like I'm going to buy. Yeah. And so this could be, you could be in high school and you just have an affinity or a love for Ferraris or whatever. And you, I, I'm a high school kid and I want a Ferrari someday, or I just love them. I'm an enthusiast, whatever it is. Um, and so that company knows how to market to me very intentionally. And if, but let's say I'm ready to buy a TV. I'm ready to buy a 60 inch, you know, flat screen or whatever it is. I say, boom, I'm in buy mode. I'm buying a 60 inch TV today or tomorrow or the next 48 hours. And companies just say, bam, I'm a, here's my 60 inch TV. And it's going to cost you 650 bucks or whatever it is. And it's just, boom, we make a decision right there on the spot. But they know how to allocate their marketing dollars. Depending on if you're in fantasy, and I don't know, maybe there's a better word, I don't know, but, but fantasy, research, or buy mode. And I tell them, this is the mode I'm in, and this is the product I want. And it, it came to me when I was doing a remodel, and I was looking for reclaimed wood flooring. And holy cow, what a disaster. And <laughs> what ended up happening is I didn't buy reclaimed wood flooring because I couldn't, it was too hard. It took too much time. So there's, there's something there, just to shift the whole paradigm on its head. All right. That's I like great, that. That's a great business. That's like 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure what my answer to this uh, question was going to be, but then you said I, ha- I had the domain and everything. I was like, oh, okay, what are all the domains that I've had over the years? And there have been a lot. I mean, because that's, that's the thing, right? Like you have the idea. It's like, I'm just going to like file this away yeah. in case, you know, magic strikes. And uh, I think probably the best business idea, it's always, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Because at some point I probably had 50 different domains and probably 48 would have, 48 of them would have failed. But I, at one point in time had like learnpython.com, I think. Oh, wow. And it was, you know, when Python was just taking off as a programming language and I registered a bunch of different programming languages, like learn Python, learn PHP, learn, 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 learn. Cause I started to see one, I was learning how to program. And at the time there was not a ton online. There was like a thing called peep code that was like, had a couple like hacky videos that were, you know, quick time, you know, dot MOV files that that's how I learned how to code, you know, and, and not, not well, you know, just enough to know that I am not a developer, (laughs) nor should I be a developer. Um, but learning was, uh, was so hard. I was like, there's gotta be a better way. You know, now fast forward today, there's Udemy, there's all these different programs that have just printed money, um, helping people learn how to code. And I think that's still a huge, huge market. Mm -hmm. I I have one more. Yeah. Um, so in, this is about in the 96, 1996, 97 timeframe. Um, one, one of the business partners, we had like four different businesses together when we were getting ready to start our, our first business together. Um, we had, we had two ideas. One was to go into broadband and the other was to, we'd done, he was an attorney and so he'd done a bunch of patent research. And the idea was um, to file a patent on a, the concept of a black box for a car. Oh, wow. Mm. And 
we didn't have enough money to do well, either one. <laughs> so, but we had to raise money for one or the other. And, yeah. we, and we chose the broadband company. And I always wonder what would have happened if we would have done the black box one because it wasn't. And it was three, four, five years later when those, I think those patents were filed by whomever does that now. Um, and uh, in every single car has a black box now. They're probably doing okay. Yep. Tof. I think it was one of the car companies. For I can't remember exactly if this is the right story or not, but for some reason it seems that one of the actual car companies filed the yeah the, a patent on that, and it became standard. Yeah. Okay, so we're in the ideation phase. Now let's <laughs> think about what research, what research do you need to do before you start a business? Oh, I love it. I love this question. Go ahead, Tove. So... I actually think that the, the the other piece of the question is just as important, and that's after you start your business. Mm. So you never stop learning. Um, but I think it goes back to what Matt said earlier, get your first customer, right? So uh, talking to people and validating, is this, is this really pain? Or you just think it's pain? So is it really pain? And then would they actually pay to solve the pain? Um, so it's just talking to people, right? Leveraging your networks, your relationships, and you may not know the right people to talk to, but you'd, you're, you'd be surprised at how fast. If I came to you, Nate, or came to Matt and said, I, I want to do X, Y, and Z, and, but I don't know anybody, good chance you know somebody who knows somebody or you know somebody. Uh, and, so, and so just being, just devouring, like, curiosity. Mm-hmm. I love that. Matt, what, is, uh, what do you think, what research do you need to do before you start a business? So I think... Um, I agree with Toph 100%. It's, it's talking to customers, talking to potential customers, finding out if it's a real pain. You definitely need to do the research of selling stuff before starting the business to know, because people tell you all the time, um, oh yeah, well, I would totally buy that. That's very different than them actually buying that. That is the real data point. Do people take out their wallet, swipe their credit card, you know, yep. get, give you cash and say, yep, let me know when it's available. I'm going to put my deposit down. I want that bad enough. Um, but even before that, I love going deep on research. There is so much information you can pull, um, online using the tools that are out there today. So I always do Google trends analysis, looking at key phrases related to the topic of the business, the pain point, seeing which direction that's going. If it's going down, um, then, you know, maybe think twice about it. Um, keyword research. So thinking about the keywords and seeing how many people globally, nationally, and then you can even see trends for that now. So there's lots of tools you can do keyword research with, but I, I like using SEMrush. There's a couple of really great companies here in Indiana too that uh, part of what they'll do is, is keyword research demand jump, started by our friend Toph over here. Demand Well is another friend of Powder Keg that, that does keyword research. And then um, Reddit is an amazing mm, place yes. to go. So find the subreddit. Um, th- I mean, Reddit's still, I think, one of the top 10 most visited websites on the internet amazing online communities there covering just about every topic you can imagine. Um, and so finding your topic, if you're thinking you're going to start a records business, go to the vinyl, you know, vinyl lovers subreddit. If you're thinking about starting a trampoline park, you know, going to the kids subreddit and seeing what moms are, well, you know, what activities moms are taking their kids to, um, it's just a great place to get lots of ideas. And and one, you got the data point of like, how active is this subreddit? But then two, actually reading the discussions and starting to like put together your own trends analysis of like, oh, all these moms are talking about, 
it's not actually the after school thing. It's the before school thing or, you know, whatever that particular insight is, it's probably not a real thing. Cause I don't <laughs> have kids. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's a, but you can kind of like triangulate, um, maybe where there's overlooked opportunity. I, I, yeah, I, I want to put an exclamation point on that because when you do, when you devour that, when you read those things, you do start to formulate your own thoughts and, and your own position, you know, how, how you're going to penetrate that thing. What I want to mention is even after you start your business, people would be shocked. Like, so demand jump every, so, so co-founder CEO demand jump for what it was seven years or eight years. And every, I don't know, probably two or three months, I would go Google what are the latest uh, key SaaS metrics? And people were always shocked by that. Like, don't you know that? Well, yeah, I know it like the back of my hand, but I always wanted to understand what's changing, what's trending, what are the latest benchmarks? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at, at how, many, how many folks I come into contact with today that have businesses that aren't keeping up on basic research, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, reading books is great, but like, you should be Googling some of these basic things because then also when you, when you look at the basic things, you're going to find something else that's going to take you down a rabbit hole. Absolutely. You go, Oh, I didn't even think about that. Right. And so just that ferocious curiosity is so critical because when you go in for the next round of financing and you're talking to investors or whatever, you better bet they're doing it. Right. And, and if you're not kind of up on the latest trends, um, it's not going to bode well. I love that. Okay. So you're talking about investors. There are, countless entrepreneurs out there that have the idea, have the research done that want to fund their company. They want to get their company funded. What's your biggest piece of advice for investor? What's your biggest piece of advice for entrepreneurs looking to get their business funded? My biggest piece of advice is make sure that's actually the right way to grow your business. So before you go down the path of like, how do I get the funding? Like getting the litmus test of like, is this, a fundable business. And if it is, what kind of funding makes the most sense? It might not be venture capital. It might be some sort of um, financing. Maybe you want to buy a business and find seller-based financing to take over and do a turnaround business. There are lots of different ways to finance a business. And um, I, I think first and foremost, asking that question. And the way that I would answer that question is a competitive analysis, looking at what are the other competitors out there? How are they capitalized? Are they as niche as you are? Are they playing in the same lane? Then look at the, that competition and say, Hey, I think I can compete. Can I compete just bootstrapping this business in that competition? Do I need to really capitalize in a big way, which would be like venture capital financing. And if so, is my business fundable from a venture standpoint? Do I have a large enough total addressable market? Meaning there's enough customers that I could sell to, to turn this into a billion, uh, ideally 10 plus billion dollar business someday. Um, and then, you know, kind of figuring out that path. And there's the analog in every different type of financing, whether that's, um, you know, revenue-based financing or seller-based financing or whatever. Toph, you are the CEO of the most active seed and early stage investor in the Great Lakes region. Toph, you are the CEO of Elevate Ventures. What is your biggest piece of advice for entrepreneurs out there that want to get their business funded? Be true to yourself. So I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs that, that say what they think people want them to say. And 
and it comes off as not genuine um, and, and, and not believable. And so, like, going back to what Matt said is, I think the first question every entrepreneur should ask themselves is, what do they want? And that sounds like an easy question, but it's not. Uh, and what I mean by that is, there's a term out there called a lifestyle business. Lifestyle business does not mean bad, small, anything of that nature. I have friends that have lifestyle businesses that are over $200 million in revenue. That's a good lifestyle. That's a good lifestyle. And so, me and, and to me, there's actually a definition out there. I think if, they, if you go Google it, there's a, such a thing as a lifestyle business. But to me, a lifestyle business is you stay in absolute control every step along the way. Right. And to Matt's point, there's a lot of different ways to get funding. Do you need funding at all? Like what type of business are you starting? And some you need it right to, to stay up with the competition. Um, but sometimes you don't. And so uh, that's the first question is what do you really want out of the business as an entrepreneur? Um, but, but back to, if you're, if you're coming into a venture capital firm, um, number one, all venture capitalists are not created equal. And so what I mean by that is make sure you understand where that venture capital firm plays. So, sector or stage um what are their minimum requirements you know in terms of revenue or growth or those types of things um, make sure you understand that on the front end and then your ask so, so number one you've got a match whatever you're doing matches how they invest because a lot of venture capitalists will take a lot of meetings just to kind of be in the know and up on latest trends etc and they really never have any intention in of investing in the first place mm-hmm. um so that that's another part of research right is to make sure you know who you're talking to uh, how they invest and then being true to yourself. Um, and the, the last thing I would see on this note would be, I got a bunch of other things I'd probably say, but another biggie is, and this is really hard for entrepreneurs and I've suffered from this myself. Squirrel, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, and it's so true, right? So go narrow and deep, go narrow and deep. Damon John, I, I heard a thing that he was talking one day and I, I can't remember what it was on, but, but he said, he said, hey, uh, the, the founder, I don't know if it's one or two founders of Under Armour, but apparently uh, Damon John started his company the same year as Under Armour was founded. And he's like, look at the two different companies, where they are. And, and Damon John's really super successful, right? Yeah. He's crushed it. And, but Under Armour's like, whoop, you know, mm-hmm. multiples of magnitude bigger. And uh, he says, Under Armour focused on, I can't what they start off with, but I, I'm going to make it up. It, it's like, they focused on a dry fit t-shirt. And he's like, I focused on all this cool stuff because I wanted to be able to sell you anything and everything. Under Armour went narrow and deep. Companies mm-hmm. that go narrow and deep, Amazon, right, went super narrow and deep when they started. There's also some other factors that came into play, but but that's a big one. I yeah. love that. Toph, you've led several businesses. What is the greatest joy in owning a business? Um, I believe that the greatest joy is 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 building a culture where people can rise to their capabilities as fast as those capabilities enable them to do. So one story I love to say, it was, it was back in that broadband business. Uh, we, I had a friend, we, we were hiring, the only openings we had were for CSRs, customer service reps. And like that opening, that opening position was like 27 grand or something like that. And a friend of mine called up and said, hey, Tove, I've got this family friend and um, you've got to meet her. She's awesome. And she, she's, uh, her, I think her major was biology in college. And she was several years out of school. She was managing a restaurant. And it's like, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go down this career path. I want to go down a different career path. 
but she's kind of too far in and she was making like, I don't know, 60 grand or something. And she's kind of too far in where people weren't giving her a shot, mm-hmm. right? Because she was managing a restaurant. And so we met, uh, the, all three of us got together. We met and I'm like, holy cow, this, you, know, you just tell, she's just ready to conquer the world. And um, I'm like, I, I'd love to bring you on, but like I, the only thing we have is, is these, these CSR positions. And uh, she didn't ask how much it was, anything at all. She said, I'll take it. I'm like, okay, when you want to start? She's like, Monday. I'm like, okay. Two years later, she became her boss's boss's boss. She became our director of ops. And so, like, I just get chills. I almost get emotional. Like, wow. like I just, and then she went on to get, like, an MBA or something at, at Notre Dame and the executive MBA program, and now she's running some team at a bank, et cetera. Totally just just crushed it. And, and but it's just awesome to see. I, I don't care if it's whatever occupation it is, people achieving whatever they want to achieve mm-hmm. and, and, and building a culture where that can happen. And not like, you got to do this for three years and then that for five years and then this for 10 years and then maybe you someday will be. Screw that. If you have the capability, why shouldn't you be able to do it right now? I love that. Matt, what is the greatest joy in owning a business? I mean, I, I think I have to agree with Toph on that. I mean, just helping people grow. And I, I like thinking about how do I help this person grow even more than they th- currently think is possible? Like, I have had so many mentors in my own life that have helped me kind of shift into that next gear, whatever metaphor you want to use, dig deeper. Um, I, I love watching kind of people's uh, mental glass ceilings shatter as they realize they're way more capable uh, of what they originally thought that they were capable of doing. Um, but I think the other big joy of uh, owning a business is leverage. And I, I think of that, that, word specifically because I've had, you know, different self-employed businesses, you know, businesses cause they're incorporated, but I'm the only employee. I think that that's actually just self-employed. It's not actually owning a business. And I, I differentiate the two by saying, you know, self-employed, when you stop working, that business stops working. Whereas when you're a business owner, you can take a day off. Like I just did this last weekend to go see Taylor Swift. And you come back and more got done, maybe than even if you were in the office because he <laughs> stepped out of the way for what? a little bit. No, <laughs> never. And I, I think that's leverage, right? When you have people who care about the mission, they're living out the core values of the, of the culture. A lot of times, especially at certain stages of the business, you can actually remove yourself from the business and actually deliver more value to your customers, to your community, and therefore to your team as well than even being involved in the business. Now, I don't mean that obviously long-term mm-hmm. necessarily, um, but even, you know, looking forward, you know, if powder keg is acquired someday down the line, the fact that that can live on without me continuing to put in, you know, whatever, 10, 12 hours a day to building the business, but can live on in a different, um, under different ownership, that's really exciting to me because ultimately what, what I'm trying to do with you, Nate, and with Meg and with the team is set the vision, create the culture so that it can live on long-term and it can be this sort of pure creative act of willing something into existence that didn't exist before. And that's what we're doing mm-hmm. now is we're setting the tone for what can be and the trajectory. I love it. Um, 
Okay, we're getting into into our lightning round. We got a couple minutes left, so we're gonna give the essential lightning round at the end. But I have a few quick ones. Ready? So, Tove, what is one essential habit that every entrepreneur needs? Sleep. Ooh, did not see that one coming from Tove, but I respect it. Matt, what is one essential habit that every entrepreneur needs? Tove took mine. Um, <laughs> One essential habit that every entrepreneur needs is to practice mindfulness. It is so easy, especially if you're working at a high growth startup. Um, it's so easy to get caught up in the, the things that are happening. There's always something urgent. There's usually something more important that you should be focused on than the urgent thing um, or a couple of important things. And it's really easy, at least for me, to get lost in just jump in from one task to the next. How can I do more, 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 more. And if you don't practice mindfulness, you can go, you can go on like that for the entirety of your career with that business. But it's in those moments where you're able to be mindful and take a step back and pay attention to your thoughts, pay attention to your emotions, that you actually get clarity and kind of can see the forest through the trees. So by practicing mindfulness as a habit, as an entrepreneur, you can actually make much better decisions take better care of yourself and you'll probably sleep better too. There we go. I love that. That's great insight, Matt. A uh, quick break from our normal programming. I have Erica Schweier, COO from Elevate Ventures here in the studio today. Erica, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And you're going to tell us a little bit about this Rally Innovation Conference that's coming up. Yep. So it's the largest cross-sector innovation conference in the world. Um, we're going to feature six innovation studios. So think hard tech, software, sports tech, ag and food, healthcare, and entrepreneurship is going to kind of be our catch-all. I love that. So Tell me what is, who's it for? Yeah, it's for innovators, entrepreneurs, investors. Honestly, anybody probably listening to this podcast. And it's going to be a multi-day thing that's multi -day. happening in downtown Indianapolis. Yep. People coming in from all over the country and maybe even all over the world to be here. That's our hope. Yep. And the dates are actually August 29th through the 31st. Perfect. And if people want to find out more information about speakers, tickets, things like that, where can they go? Yeah. So they just go to rallyinnovation.com and sign up for communications. And they can also get their tickets. I love it. You heard it here at rallyinnovation.com. We'll, we'll see, see you, you there. there. If you started a business and the only employee was ChatGPT, what would that business be? The only employee is ChatGPT. You have one employee, the employee is ChatGPT. I would write, I would have ChatGPT write the next great J.R. Tolkien series. Yes. Yeah. Publishing company. Yes. I like that. But but a guaranteed winner. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna I I think oh you want to yeah, yeah. <laughs> Matt, if you were gonna start a business and the only employee could be chat GPT, what would the business be? I think the business would be something around creativity and creative spark. And I, I think it would be some sort of chat bot that would be a subscription business for those who want to do better in their career, live a more meaningful life, live a more connected life with themselves and the people they love and care about um, to really help hone their creative uh, craft. So helping them with writing prompts, um, helping hold them accountable, 
being kind of that coach and mentor because creativity is one of those things that's very vulnerable. If you're truly tapping into something creative and allowing things to kind of come up from your subconscious, um, I, I, I actually think that by removing the human element, you could actually tap into a deeper level of creativity for more people. And, I, and it's not a fully formed business idea, but I'd be something in that space. Something to do with creative spark. Yep. I like that. Matt and his pyrotechnic names. Yep. I love it. You know, I'm a fan of the pyrotechnics. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, gentlemen, now time for our normal lightning round. Toph, first question. Besides the amazing entrepreneurial ecosystem, what is Indiana known for? Innovation. Boom. Full stop right there. Matt, besides the amazing entrepreneurial ecosystem, what is Indiana known for? I'm going through all the answers that have already been sent on the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to give a new one. Um, hmm, 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 hmm. Education. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, there's a I mean, there's some prestigious universities in this school or in yep. this state. There really are. Yep. Yeah, that's a that's a great one. Um and you've gone to two of them, so there we go. <laughs> Gotta catch them all. Exactly. Uh TOF. Give me one hidden gem in Indiana. The beach. Indiana Beach? Nope. The beach on Lake Michigan. We have 45 miles of gorgeous sandy beach that makes you feel like you're in heaven with gorgeous sunsets. Mm -hmm. And it is amazing. And we need to show that to the world. Absolutely. It's a good time up there. Yeah. Love that. Matt. Give me a hidden gem in Indiana. There are so many, but I'm going to pull one from my childhood and it's called Feast of the Hunter's Moon. Oh my gosh. Feast of the Hunter's Moon is amazing. I know. What is Feast of the Hunter's Moon? So it's, it's, uh, held at Fort Wiatnan, which is a French, uh, fort from, I guess it's gotta be the 1700s, 1800s. Yeah, back in the day, they, they do all kinds of like reenactments of historic battles, which actually happened there, um, in that area. There's a ton of, um, uh, there's a ton of history around that area from, um, Prophet's Rock, who was the prophet, um, he was like the Obama of the Native Americans. He like united all <laughs> of the awesome. all, the, all yeah. the different clans. I can't remember his name. Um, so much history up there. Um, gosh, it wasn't. It wasn't. I should know this. I should know this. Tecumseh. Tecumseh that's right. Tecumseh. We should have known that from t- Camp Tecumseh. <laughs> it's true. It's like a national bluegrass fiddlers convention held in Battleground, Indiana. A historic battle happened there. Been there too, as well. Um, it, it is beautiful and um, just like the most accomplished fiddlers, uh, violinists, and of course all the supporting, you know, mandolin, banjo, guitarists. That sounds like a good time from all over the world. Famous band once said, "If you're gonna play in Texas, you gotta have a fiddle in the band." <laughs> that should be a song. Yeah, <laughs> they should it be a prob- song. About it that. probably is. <laughs> He has no idea that it is a song. Oh, no, I don't. I, I'm not Alabama. up on it. Come on. I'm sorry. You're kidding. He didn't know. No, didn't he, know. Oh, my god. From the guy, he goes to Taylor Swift is the extent of his country music. Okay. Oh, my Lord. Um, final question. Yep. Matt. Oh, Matt's first. Uh, well, we're going to go. I'm see. looking up my answer because I know my answer to this one. I can't remember oh. the last name. Okay. But mm. I'm looking up right now. I don't remember what the last question is. Matt, who is someone that we need to keep on our radar? Someone doing big things. Mm. 
You know your answer? I'm going to say Ashley Flowers. Who is Ashley Flowers? She is the second most either listened to or downloaded podcaster, I think, in the world, uh, only behind, or at least in the U.S., only behind Joe Rogan. Is she wow. true, the true crime yeah, Podcast. Crime Junkies. Crime Junkies? Yeah, yes. I just found out about her literally a couple days ago. And Ashley, if you, if anybody knows Ashley, can you please uh, have her reach out to me? I want to meet Ashley because I have a lot of fun things that we can do uh, that I want to invite her to do. And um, But she's a massive influencer, and she lives in Broad Ripple, Indiana. I love that. Yeah. I've not run into her. And by the way, there are like literally 20,000 Ashley Flowers in Indiana <laughs> that are like doing other things that are global impact in nature and in all different industries and sectors and nobody knows their names. Ashley so Flowers. let's start with you, the first one. If you Ashley see this, Flowers. Tope is looking for I'm you. looking for you, Ashley. Yes. I love that. Matt, who is someone we need to keep on our radar? Someone doing big things. The, the first person that came to mind is probably because they just announced their new fund is Scott Craigie. Scott Craigie, co-founder of Moby, uh, had a tremendously successful exit, just founded Ivy Ventures, $20 million uh, fund in partnership um, with Innovate Map, good friends of the show, good friends of Powder Keg. Um, and he's also the co-owner of the Vogue Theater, historic Vogue Theater in, uh, in Broad Ripple. So I, I think just keeping an eye on Scott because they just launched this fund. They're going to be doing more things. I know he's uh, EIR at Techstars there for a while too. Um, just super connected and a great guy, uh, obviously has already done amazing things. Um, so I don't know if that's a, a fair answer because <laughs> he's going to keep doing big, bigger and bigger things. Uh, but that's what first came to mind for me. I love it. Well, guys, this was a great episode. Thank you so much as two, you know, of my both business and personal role models. This has been, I mean, an amazing deep dive into how you guys think about business and leadership and, and just what's growing here in Indiana. So one, I really appreciate all the effort you guys put into the show and let's just get another guest back and keep diving in on what's going on in, in the Hoosier state. Let's get in. Let's, let's get, get I love it. in. This has been get in a powder kick production in partnership with elevate ventures. And we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions for a guest or a segment, reach out to Matt or Nate on LinkedIn or on email. To discover top-tier tech companies outside of Silicon Valley in hubs like Indiana, check out our newsletter at powderkeg.com newsletter. And to apply for membership to the Powder Keg executive community, check out powderkeg.com premium. We'll catch you next time and next week as we continue to help the world get in. Since you just listened to this podcast, you might be thinking about starting one for your company. Lucky for you, our partners over at Casted have you covered. Casted is the first and only podcast and video marketing platform made specifically for B2B brands. I love this about them. The platform makes it possible to publish, syndicate, amplify, and measure the value of your podcast and video content. In fact, we use it for our podcast here at Powder Keg. And if you're a startup, you should listen up because Casted for startups is definitely for you. They are offering exclusive deep discounts of up to 82% off retail price for qualifying startups. Connect with Casted at casted.us slash powderkeg.